Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. I've got a nasty virus here this week, so we're just going to make this happen. The episode might be a little briefer, but the show must go on. So I'm going to cover a little bit of uh, listener questions and some breaking science news. Then we'll probably go to break early. Uh, and we'll go over to Phil, who actually got some questions from the gym floor this week uh, that he can answer after the break. So let's get right to it. Strength and Muscle Sport News. So this first one is paraphrased from Sarah. Uh, Sarah just basically wanted to know what's happening uh, in my lab, uh, either recently or this coming fall. So I'll give everybody a quick recap and some sneak peeks. In June, at the International Society of Sports Nutrition meeting in Vegas, I gave a podium talk and the students had two posters on the relationship between caffeine intake and physical activity. Long story short, there wasn't uh, significant correlations. In other words, the more that young people consumed caffeine, uh, it didn't necessarily lead to more steps per day or movement counts per day, right? Because sometimes it's at the wrist. It's not always steps. Um, But we were sort of forced to conclude there that because most of the students at my university are team athletes, they ended up, um, well, frankly, moving whatever the coach told them to move. You know, how many laps or steps per day or reps in the gym. A lot of this was dictated to them and not simply urged upon them by the chemical influence of caffeine. So our results did not look like some studies from middle-aged free-living people where it did, in fact, look like the more caffeine they consumed, the more they moved around. Uh, And again, probably because your voluntary desire to move around is only one of many factors for college students uh, that are in team sports it's important to realize that correlations, right, observational studies like we often discuss are not causal. So caffeine may be a minor contributor uh, in this population, but again, it's it doesn't look strongly related. We weren't looking for something causal, though. The other thing we looked at, I've already discussed a bit, which was how it appeared as though uh, women were getting a little bit more alert and higher epinephrine release from coffee, from consuming a large amount of coffee. We give a standard two packets of Via Instant Coffee. It's a good whopping dose. Even Phil said it lit him up pretty good to drink two packets of that stuff. Uh, It has two and a half times the caffeine of regular instant coffee. So that was interesting. Uh, The literature goes back and forth as to whether or not women get more out of a cup of coffee. What we saw, though, in our small little cohort suggested that they may. Uh, We looked at it in more than one way. It was actually fairly complex research design. That abstract is probably published now, and you can probably find that in the Journal of the ISSN. 
uh, as far as this fall, Sarah, um, we're looking at a couple of more things here. We're following up on the observational study that we were doing last year, and we're looking at whether that caffeine intake correlates with sleep at all. Uh, if our hypothesis holds, then there'll be an inverse correlation, right? The more coffee you consume or the more milligrams of caffeine, the lower your sleep quality will be. Uh, we're just now analyzing that, and I said I'd give you a sneak peek. We're not seeing much there. It doesn't look like there are significant inverse correlations between how much coffee you consume. And some of the guys in the study, it was just a small uh, study. I think there were 19 people. Uh, most of our studies are like that, but that's the beauty of inferential statistics, right? If you get a nice sample, that's big enough that you can at least predict how many subjects you would need for significance or you, you have a good idea that you're not only looking at outliers, uh, and some of the guys were serious, like pre-workout pill and powder kind of guys, lifters, uh, in that study. But it wasn't, at least in this correlational model, related to how well they slept or not. Um, the other thing, which is really quite different that we're going to do this fall, uh, and we only have very preliminary data here, just six people so far, but just to kind of give you an update. But uh, we're feeding coffee before a high glycemic carbohydrate challenge. In young people, there's some data in middle-aged guys, a lot of Japanese work you've heard uh, Dr. Nelson and I talk about, but ongoing over many weeks, people who consume coffee have less pre-diabetes, right? They have less diabetes-like symptoms, better carbohydrate uh, metabolism, that sort of thing. Uh, we're going to look in young people. There's a couple of uh, different papers on this, but protocol differences in the type of carbs they give and... Um, even the nationality and other population specificity issues come into play. Uh, right now, it looks like there is, and I don't even know, this is double blind. So we have a coffee A, a coffee B, and water as our pure control. And one of the coffee beverages, it did look like it lowered or affected area under the curve over a two-hour carbohydrate challenge. So we give them 50 grams of high glycemic uh, index carbohydrates, Every 30 minutes, we, we take samples in duplicate, uh, and then we take a look. And it did look like, especially toward the end of that period, maybe when the coffee is getting absorbed and there's more of those phytochemicals in your bloodstream, uh, maybe having a glucose disposal effect in young people. That'd be very interesting because there are other studies suggesting that coffee may help with glycogen deposition and that sort of thing. But again, so many studies look at middle-aged, carb-resistant people. We all get a little carb-resistant as we age. Uh, but in young people, whether or not coffee is better, uh, less interfering uh, with your carbohydrate handling ability than, let's say, a pill or a powder, uh, that's very interesting to me. And it looks like maybe a little. Okay, this next one is from John. I might call this an outrage piece, <laughs> which I've been doing a little bit lately. Just things you can roll your eyes at a little. But um, John sent this from the New York Times Aerobic fitness may trump strength for metabolic health. Uh, endurance affects metabolism substantially more than muscular strength does, according to a new study. Let's take a look here. And again, I'll, I'll get to why I consider this a little bit of an outrage response for me. This is by Gretchen Reynolds. Again, aerobic fitness may trump strength for metabolic health. Uh, basically, it says a study was recently published 
in August in uh, Journal of the American Medical Association Network Open, JAMA Network Open, and it found that uh, people's aerobic endurance or lack of it influenced their metabolisms more potently than muscular uh, weakness uh, or muscular strength. And they talk about different implications. Now, as far as the outrage, and this is pretty mild outrage, I don't have an enemy to get super fired up right now. Depending on what variable you observe, we've known for decades that muscle mass doesn't cause the extent of tissue changes, if you will, compared to strength training. In fact, I have an old weightlifting book that actually suggests that wildly hypertrophied skeletal muscle looks only a little bit different from more or less uh, sedentary muscle, except it's larger. I always was a little offended by that. I'm like, come on, there must be differences in you know, fast glycolysis or the phosphagen system or something like that. Uh, but it's been stated for years that the metabolic changes that come with having an aerobic base are different and probably have uh, farther reaching effects. For example, more mitochondria, right, in your muscles, uh, more capillaries, uh, changes in heart morphology and blood flow and things like that are different and enhanced with aerobic training. It's one of the reasons why having an aerobic base is probably important. Last week, I think it was, I'm sort of in a haze here. Last week, I actually mentioned that uh, you can be quite big. And if you're an infrequent lifter and you're sore a lot and, and just plowing through the grub and the high calories, you might actually be, this is speculation, but you might be a little bit insulin resistant. Um, and this sort of aerobic base would certainly help with that. I always tell students that aerobic training changes you from the subcellular level all the way up. So better fat-burning machine, better carbohydrate disposer. There's a lot of things that go with that. So um, I'm not sure. I think this was almost like a clickbait kind of title because obviously there's lots of things that muscle mass will do for you that uh, if you're purely all about VO2 max and endurance, you're not going to get a lot of the benefits that strength provides. This is just specificity, right? The specificity principle in action. You get good at what you train. Okay, next up. Uh, this is from the Institute of Food Technologists. Vegetarian bugs may be better than a glass of orange juice. So this caught my eye. I'm like, how can you have vegetarian bugs? They're animal protein. But it's not the fact that we as people are vegetarian, but we're, they're actually talking about bugs that eat plants as opposed to predatory bugs, right? Anyway, edible insects are uh, rich sources of animal protein that don't adversely uh, impact Earth's resources. The new paper suggests they're also a good source of antioxidants. So scientists in Italy actually found that the vegetarian bugs, so almost think of the equivalent in large critters like cows, right, as opposed to something predatory like a lion. So the, the bugs that graze on the plants have surprisingly high amounts of antioxidants. It says... Part of the interest in this is that raising edible insects requires far less land, of course, than cattle or chicken or pigs. Uh, insects require six times less feed than cattle and two times less feed uh, than pigs and chickens to basically produce the same amount of protein. So they're very attractive. 
especially if you could kind of grind them down into powder. We've been talking about this over the years. Nobody wants to be spitting out little antennae and legs and stuff like that. Not very appealing. In fact, it says most consumers in westernized countries are resistant to bug protein. The Italian researchers analyzed a range of edible insects and invertebrates for antioxidant activity by grinding them up uh, after they removed their wings and stingers. It all sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? But um, then they took those extracts uh, and dissolved them in either water or fat-soluble solutions. The water-soluble extracts of the dry insect dust of the vegetarian insects uh, contained higher levels of antioxidants than predatory insects that eat other bugs. And the, the highest uh, examples were grasshoppers, silkworms, and crickets. In fact, higher levels of antioxidants than fresh-squeezed orange juice. Wow. Okay, one more. I'm reading this with a mild case of double pink eye and serious congestion here. Uh, the degree of amino acidemia after dairy protein ingestion does not modulate the post-exercise anabolic response in young men. This is by Chan and colleagues from the Journal of Nutrition. It's brand new this fall. Uh, it says resistance exercise and dietary protein stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So you lift and you get a boost uh, when there's protein involved, especially the rate at which proteins are digested and absorbed into the circulation alters the peak plasma levels, and that could modulate post-exercise muscle protein synthesis. So what they did was they took a novel mineral-modified milk protein concentrate, and they compared it to regular milk protein concentrate or casein. The idea was that this mineral-enhanced stuff would really rush the amino acids into your bloodstream, and that might actually be more anabolic. As far as the methods, they took 30 healthy young men. They were 22 and a half years old on average. They completed three sets of leg pressing and leg extensions at 80% of their one rep max. Uh, afterwards, they were randomly assigned uh, to 25 grams of these three different uh, conditions. Meanwhile, of course, they were all being uh, studied with tracers. It says plasma essential amino acid concentrations, including leucine, were uh, roughly 19 to 27% greater in this specially prepared mineral milk protein concentrate group, 45 to 90 minutes post-ingestion when compared with the other groups, with the regular milk protein concentrate or the casein. So definitely, you know, uh, maybe a quarter higher amino acid levels in their bloodstream uh, concentrations when they actually looked at myofibrillar fractional uh, synthetic rate from baseline to four hours uh, it was increased to about 83% with quite a bit of variation uh, in uh, the milk protein concentrate group. A 138% increase in the special mineral enhanced milk protein concentrate group. And 140%, 141 in the casein group. So uh, no difference statistically between these groups, though there was too much uh, variability, it looks like. Uh, they go on to say, that the amplitude of plasma leucine and amino acid concentrations, essential amino acids, does not modulate the anabolic response after resistance exercise of 25 grams of dairy protein in young men. Huh. Maybe we'll get Stu Phillips or Nick Bird back on. Those guys are stable isotope and dairy protein experts. 
uh, protein synthesis experts and ask them what's going on here. Because in the past, as the paper noted, it did suggest that fast proteins like whey were more anabolic, presumably because they got higher amino acid concentrations, essential amino acids, uh, in your bloodstream. So this suggests that's not the reason. But there could be some protocol issues here. Again, I'd like to get the take on this from some of the experts in the field. So uh, stay tuned, and we'll have to check in with those guys. So that's going to be it for me. Let's go to break now. And uh, Phil is going to join us afterwards with some questions from the gym floor. listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, and we're going to go ahead and also take <clears throat> a couple questions today. So I posted up and just asked if anybody had any questions. Craig O'Connell came on because I know Craig's eating up too. So <laughs> his simple question was gaining weight. 
So I'm going to guess, like, how do you gain weight? Um, what am I doing? I can tell you that. And what do I have people do? So, I mean, it's pretty simple. Um, Year-round, I eat about the same thing. So, meaning, like, all the time, no matter my goals, I have kind of the same basic foods that I know how to eat now from years of eating correctly and years of eating wrongly. Um, I have my, I have my staples that I eat, you know, I always eat a good breakfast. I always have, you know, lots of meat and veggies and eggs and, and things like that. The difference comes when I'm gaining weight. Um, I eat that and then I add on to that. And by add on to that, I mean, add on whatever it is. So it's just calories at that point. Um, since I'm going up to 308 this time, and it's it's been fairly prob- problematic. Um, I was having some hard time gaining weight. I made it to about 278, and I was just kind of stuck there for about two and a half, three weeks. So I had to make that decision to where from that point on, anything that crosses my lips needs to have calories. So pretty much I dropped water. I dropped anything that was was uh, calorie-free or near-calorie-free. And so I've swapped all my water for, like, juices and Gatorades and things like that. So I've been drinking lots of apple juice, lots of orange juice, lots of pineapple juice um, and things like that. I get all my good food in. Um, Oddly enough, this may sound strange to some people, but I've been enjoying a beer a day. So when I head off to my facility, I stop at the store on the way down. I buy one beer. Um... And I drink that. And there's just some few calories there. And it's enjoyable because it's hot out. Um, I'm not sitting down to a 12-pack of beer. I'm sitting down to one beer. Get an extra few hundred calories. Um, so it's kind of anything. Just I look at everything for its calorie uh, impact <clears throat> and add on there. So um, lots of simple foods. Um, I've added on more sugars this time maybe than I ever have uh, for trying to gain weight. So... And it started to help. I was able to make it from that, like I said, 278 to where I topped out at 288.5 the other day. And pretty much the change I made was uh, adding sugared drinks on. So my juices and things like that. And uh, (laughs) it might be a little TMI, but uh, adding like the apple juices and things on there too. I I have this tendency to get really bloated and... uh, a large amount of apple juice has a tendency to make make things get moving again if you if you get my drift so uh it's helped with that because some days i'll just like oh my gut is so big and packed full uh but yeah i mean it's just it's it's good basic food and then literally from there it's put whatever you can on it so um i get lots of meats and vegetables and things like that but at this point i'm not shying away from everything so i mean it's uh anything that'll cross my lips that will add calories in is what I'm going for. So, and like I said, lots of sugars, more than, more than normal. And this is a short lived thing for me. So I've got about eight weeks left and then I'll go right back down. But that's, that's my trick. I mean, it's, it's literally just keep eating and don't stop. Uh, basically I, I start eating again whenever I'm not uncomfortably full. So there you go. So we've got another question. This is from Big Brian Hartzell. So everybody knows Brian. He's uh, I, I help coach Brian, but uh, he's one of the few men in history to squat and deadlift 900 in the same meet. 
And Brian has the question. It's a kind of a two-part question. I'm going to lump them together because they're very related. Best heart rate for cardio. And then below that, he says treadmill or full-body elliptical. Um, God, best heart rate for cardio. I mean, there's that whole between 55 and 85% of your max heart rate um, thing. Honestly, for me, I really don't even measure heart rate. I think your best thing, I think for, I'm going to take this to, to strength athletes. Um, if you can get in several hours a week of non-panting cardio, for us big people like Brian, he's like 350, 360. Honestly, just go walk. I think, I really think in today's day and age, not enough people just go walk. If you can go, um, get in 30 minutes of unbroken walking or hell 10 minutes here and there, whatever you can get in. I think we just need to do that. Get your heart rate up without killing yourself. It's going to not impact your training in a bad way. Um, it's going to add some heart health. Like one thing I've been doing is just going out two to three days a week for about an hour, throwing on a backpack and just walking. Cause as I'm getting heavy now, I can tell the daily life is getting harder and I don't want to drop dead at some point. Um, get out and do some walking. For some of my other athletes, um, and one thing I've used a lot in the past, I stopped since my hip replacement just because I'm not supposed to do any pounding or anything. Um, there's lots of intermittent, uh, like interval training, sled work, rest, sled work, rest, sled work, rest. Honestly, though, I mean, really, when you come down to brass tacks, do whatever cardio you'll do and do it consistently. So whatever allows you to get out there and do some kind of cardio consistently um, is the best for you. We can all sit down and, and, and figure out scientific papers to tell you what is the exact best heart rate. But honestly, none of it matters if you're not doing it. So it's figuring out what cardio you actually enjoy and doing it yourself. Another thing that I've been doing is, uh, like some density training type stuff, which gets to be very cardiovascular. And I like it more than, than, than traditional cardio. Like I just despise getting on a treadmill or elliptical. So that question, I would say neither just because I hate them. And I think they're stupid and they bore the hell out of me. Um, I would rather go outside and hike and things like that or split wood. Um, but I like lifting weights so I can pair two exercises that are very submaximal. I can get a lot of volume in on them. Let's say I'm doing bench and curls or, uh, rows and pushdowns and I just keep going for 10 minutes and I don't stop. Um, that gets your heart rate up. I get a lot of extra volume in that I, I need and, uh, and little cardiovascular benefits. So <clears throat> Jay Ashman came on and asked, have I ever been to a Turkish prison? Well, there are periods in my life I don't like to speak of. And, uh, that would be one of them, Jay. Um, you promised me we'd never bring this up. So I'm going to skip that question for now and, um, let everybody use their imagination on what might've happened in the Turkish prison. Okay, I got a question about frequency trading. This is actually something I want to bring up to you guys because I know I've, uh, I have uh, personally chastised frequency training in the past for myself, not for others. I, I, like I said, I think, I think it has, um, like all training, types of training have, uh, have benefits, 
but uh, it was not for me. I tried the whole frequency training numerous times, and my issue, again, like I talked about earlier in the show, was I am a type A personality. So I would come in with this plan, and one thing with, with frequency training is you need to stay throttled back um, for frequency training to work. Like you can't go in and squat four or five days a week if you're always pushing the envelope. All you're going to do is, is burn up. So um, one thing I have noticed that I'm better at now is I can come in and simply punch the clock. Like in the past, all of my workouts have been very high uh, effort. I'm not going to say intensity because that gets messed up. But uh, um, I enjoy training to uh, running on the edge with the throttle cracked all the way open. So um, so my my efforts at frequency training failed miserably because I would come in with a plan to to do this throttled back workout and then next thing I know I'm I'm doing everything I can. So but in recent years I've I've kind of come to a place where I can go in and like I said do that uh density training and things like that where it's very low weight um and it's just punching the clock, just getting reps in. Uh for injured places and things like that. Like with my shoulder, that's why I'm doing a lot of that on my upper body stuff. I just need to get a lot of volume back in. And volume that doesn't hurt me. So um, I have two to three days where I push it really hard. And then I have two to three days where I'm literally just punching the clock. So that gives me six days of training. Um, four of those are upper body. Um, two of those are lower body because I still, my Saturday is a very uh, intense training day where I do all my squats and my all my heavy squats and deadlifts in one day. So, and then I have one lower body day where I just do assistance work. And some days like the, some weeks like this week, it was a very stressful week, um, where I skip it and I'll just get my walks in and things like that. But, uh, I think frequency training as a place, you need to be smart with it. You need to back off and it needs to be very sub-maximal. So there you go. Devin, Devin Mills just came on and what are my thoughts on using pre-workouts as a copy, coffee substitute in the morning, drinking it during class, uh, or just because it's tasty. It tastes like fruit. It can't be that bad, eh? <laughs> Devin, I am not a uh, um, a pre-workout hater. Um, I don't know about it. I don't think I've ever used like a pre-workout powder uh, outside of training, except for maybe testing one. Um but uh, I don't know if I'd go that far. Uh, I think if you had a test or something, sure. Or if you just need to get up here now and again, I can't imagine using it on a daily basis. But uh, you know, I've backed off my coffee intake a lot of of late, uh, my caffeine intake, and I basically only use a pre workout one day a week, and that's for uh, <clears throat> that's for my Saturday trainings. But now I don't think it's a problem. I mean. Is it good for you? Maybe not. Probably not. But I mean, hell, we're all gonna die. Uh, so we're all gonna die of something. But um, I think you can you can have it instead of coffee. I mean, coffee I think has many more benefits that 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 a that a pre workout wouldn't. And depends on what all your pre workout is in it. But hell, I mean, if you're gonna do it, if you're gonna do it, if it's gonna get you through your day and make you happier today, then accept that and go on and kick today's in the dick and just, just, just own it. So I, I, I'm not going to argue with you. That's a bad thing. So, 
Here's a tough one from Stonathan Jout. Um, I'm guessing that's a changed name, but whatever. If not, Stonathan's a pretty cool name. Uh, what is the optimal frequency per week to work a muscle group to gain muscle? Um, geez, that's a tough one. Um, I would have to say if somebody, if I was working with a bodybuilder again, which I haven't done in about a year and a half or so, um, once, maybe twice a week, or there'll be some over, there'll be like an overlap day, but, uh, we won't train a lot more than that. And we'll go like tissue, tissue assassin, like Lonnie always talks about. We are purposely going to do some muscle damage. And another thing we need to add into this is I think a lot of people mess up um, when they're trying to gain muscle and they don't eat enough. Uh, you're not going to gain an appreciable amount of muscle uh, without substance to repair the muscle damage we're creating. But I'd say once, maybe twice a week, and you need to get some quality work in uh, and literally do some muscle damage. I mean, we need to go in there and train in ways that, that, that get things done. Uh, one of the most recent <laughs> uh, sessions where I've got more sore than I have in a lot of years was uh, when I trained with Dave Lipson out in Colorado at the famous Armbrist Gym. Him and Waddy uh, put me through a bodybuilding back workout. Uh, Waddy trains like, I don't remember what it is, 60 IFBB pros or something like that. Um, and just kicked my ass. And it was lots of force negatives, lots of time sets, lots of tempo work, lots of things like that. Um, I think you need to go in if you want to gain an appreciable amount of muscle. Uh, and we need to do an appreciable amount of muscle damage that you need to heal from. Enough that you can heal, but, uh, and then you need to give that body part time to, time to, to fix itself. Like that particular workout, I was sore for about a week and a half. Um, it would have been stupid of me to go in and do more back work. So it depends on how much you get done. And that's where like a one day a week might be the best. Um, if you're doing a large amount of tissue damage, then you need to let that tissue heal before you crush it again. Uh, so I'd say once, maybe twice a week and, uh, make sure your recovery and eating's on point and then, uh, get ready for the gains train. So Jason Hassler would like to hear my thoughts on how I train when I'm losing weight after a competition. Do I alter my weights, reps, and so on? This is what I've changed to, Jason, in the recent past, in the last four or five years. That works good for me. My training after competition, I always, pretty much my only goal is usually um, maintaining like an 80% on all of my major lifts. So let's say I go in and hit uh, 800 on squat. Um, you know, then I'm going to be going in and hitting. I need to go in on any given Saturday then. And I needed to be able to squat about 640. Um, after this last meet, I just called that an even 600. My goal was always to be able to come in and do uh, do 600 because I want to keep as much muscle as I can and as much strength as I can. And it worked very well uh, that my last competition this last fall, um, I did that for three or four months. I lost about 45 pounds, and I was still consistently hitting uh, – 600s on my squat and my deadlift 
which made this transition then into peaking for the next meet very easy. Uh, and I'm also a big believer in doing that for that same type of training with my uh, physique competitors, meaning bodybuilders, figure models, things like that, like me and Lonnie have talked about. Um, there's one thing that you keep muscle on, and that's moving lots of weight. If lots of reps made you keep muscle, then marathon runners would be jacked and carry a lot of muscle. Um, if you're consistently telling your body as you're going down that this is a stimulus we're going to be doing often in our daily life. Like there's going to be often times that I'm asked to in my daily life squat 600 pounds. My body's going to tell me, oh, man, I need to hang on some of this. This guy's going to be doing this every week. So you need to keep the intensity up somewhat. Of course, you need to drop it down and be realistic. You're not going to hit 95% when you lose 40 pounds. But if we can stay in that 80% range and still make it easy, uh, I don't think you need to go much higher than that. I think just staying consistently where you're hitting a rep or two in that 80% range and then uh, then getting some other volume in. Uh, my volume drastically goes down when I'm losing weight because I'm not eating enough to recover from that. Uh, but I just get quality work in, fairly heavy, get some reps in, do some assistance work, and I'm done. So. <clears throat> Austin, Maine, in-season training for high school athletes. I am very much in line with Winler on this. I think too many people uh, fuck this up, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, this will be the last question I hit up. But I think a lot of people in the off season, they you see them, they train the shit out of these kids uh, and make them really strong. And I've seen it a hundred times where I send one of my athletes, I send them in the off for football season, and he's jacked and in really good shape. And then come season, he comes back, and he's half the man he was before. Um, and I think a lot of these athletic trainers are missing the boat. They're running the shit out of these kids. They are beating them up all season long. I think Windler's doing amazing things with his kids where basically come the end of the season, they are at their strongest. I think during season training, you need to keep the uh, the lifting manageable as far as volume. And our worry is just keeping these kids strong, um, you know, doing what it takes to keep them, keep them strong. And hopefully, I mean, hitting maxes come the end of the season, all time maxes for them. I mean, not maxes in the gym and it doesn't have to mean a grinder, but being the strongest they are come the end of the season. And that's not hard to do. You just throttle back the training, um, keep it very basic, maybe one or two lifts a day, um, volume fairly low. And we're just looking to maintain strength during the season. Um, maintain or gain a little strength does not take a lot of work, especially with their other work. All their assistance work is the field, you know, as far as strength training goes. The strength training is their assistance work. Um, so, and all we're trying to assist in is keeping them strong and injury-free. So, um, keep the lifting very basic uh, and targeted at keeping them slash keeping them strong slash making them a little stronger. Um, not just volume and the shit out of them and beating them up. So I think that's that's pretty problematic. So that's it. We were going to call it there. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls 
in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, in their thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.